0: Once in a great while, a man comes
1: along With many words to say, and many songs to play And many enemies to tell they're wrong Once in a great while, a man will emerge With many problems to face, and many talents to waste And many people to give what they deserve
0: And his name is Joe Man, and this is his show And he doesn't care what you think that you know privilege
1: and he's gonna use it To fight for the rights of the world What's up everybody? You're tuned into the Joe Man Show I am of course your host Joe Man And tonight I've got a lot of bases to cover I've been out of the studio for a bit First with a severe case of the flu And then that was immediately followed by a serious case of acute mastoiditis Which is an ear infection of one of the bones of the inner ear I'm still fighting that. I'm basically deaf in my right ear, with the exception of the tinnitus, which is like a tone generator hooked up to an amplifier inside my skull. Nevertheless, I felt uh, functional enough to pull myself together and do tonight's show, so here I am. Anyway, as mentioned, I have a lot of bases to cover. I suppose we'll start with the story that has been dominating a lot of headlines lately, and that's the story of actor Jussie Smollett, star of the Fox series Empire, who's been making headlines because he faked an attack on himself and tried to frame it as a hate crime committed by a group of Trump supporters, when the reality was that it was two men he himself hired. But I'm honestly less concerned about the Jesse Smollett story than I am about the story that didn't make headlines because of it, And that is the story of Christopher Hassan. The same week that the Jussie Smollett story broke, Lieutenant Christopher Hassan, a 49-year-old Coast Guard officer and self-described white nationalist who, according to court filings, was plotting an attack on Democrats, journalists, and civilians on a scale, quote, rarely seen in this country, unquote, was arrested by federal prosecutors who declared him a domestic terrorist. And in an email draft obtained from his computer, he was quoted as writing, I am dreaming of a way to kill every last person on Earth. But because of the Jussie Smollett debacle, a lot of people didn't hear about this story. The Jesse Smollett of the world do one thing, and that's keep right-wingers locked in a feedback loop. Because of stories like this, it's easy for them to write off every hate crime as fake. To quote John Iadora of the Young Turks on Twitter, if it's cold anywhere, climate change is a hoax. If a single hate crime is faked, racism doesn't exist. If a single rape accusation is false, sexual assault isn't an issue. Right-wing thought in 2019 is just a glorified series of -of get-out-of-thinking free cards, and I couldn't agree with them more. As long as right-wingers have scapegoats like Jussie Smollett, they'll never force themselves to reflect on their own ideologies. Despite that practically every single extremist crime in the United States in 2018 was committed by a white domestic right-winger, If the quote left unquote ever slips up, it won't register for them. It goes right along with their victim blaming. They couldn't care less about the horrors being inflicted on children by ICE because they should never have come here in the first place. There's always an excuse, and it's a big part of why I honestly don't think we'll probably ever get through to them. We'll be right back.
2: Wonderful. I feel like a felt like, like a felt like a, a felt like a fly, like a butterfly.
1: into the Joe Man show. I'm your host Joe Man. That last track was a deep cut, Fly Like a Butterfly by Hideki Naganuma from the Jet Set Radio Future soundtrack. Some of you might remember that game from the original Xbox about a bunch of cyberpunk skaters/graffiti artists fighting the machine. It featured a unique art style and the driving glitchy breakbeats of Naganuma meshed with it perfectly. This next track is one you may or may not have heard. It's my remix of one of my favorite comedies of all time, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I'm happy to say that it was retweeted by original Monty Python cast member Eric Idle. It's a small gesture, but to me, it's massive. Just to know that Roger the Shrubber himself played my video tribute to his work and enjoyed it has had me every bit as giddy as I was when I first found out that Dayman's step had made its way all the way to the gang. (sighs) Roger the Shrubber was actually the very first idea I ever had for a remix. It came to me back in middle school when I was watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail for probably the thousandth time, and I noticed that Roger the Shrubber's introduction to King Arthur was a bit rhythmic. So I found some random Monty Python fan site that hosted samples, downloaded the clip, pulled it into Fruity Loops 2 at the time, and got to work. Obviously, this is not that same remix. This is just a tribute. But I imagine if I went back in time and showed this to my adolescent self, he'd shit his pants with glee right after asking me what a retweet is. So without further ado, here is Roger the Shrubber. Enjoy.
3: suffered a fatal heart attack.
1: show i'm your host joe man that last track was roger the shrubber and you can find that on my youtube channel along with a download link by searching joe man roger the shrubber the actor who plays roger the shrubber in monty python and the holy grail eric Idle, retweeted that not long after i posted it Uh, another major event that bears mentioning is that last wednesday february 27th trump's former lawyer michael cohen took questions from the house oversight committee testifying against trump here are some of the highlights from that testimony
4: I am here under oath to correct the record, to answer the committee's questions truthfully, and to offer the American people what I know about President Trump. I recognize that some of you may doubt and attack me on my credibility. It is for this reason that I have incorporated into this opening statement documents that are irrefutable and demonstrate that the information you will hear is accurate and truthful. Never in a million years did I imagine when I accepted a job in 2007 to work for Donald Trump, that he would one day run for the presidency, to launch a campaign on a platform of hate and intolerance and actively win. I regret the day I said yes to Mr. Trump. I regret all the help and support I gave him along the way. I am ashamed of my own failings and publicly accepted responsibility for them by pleading guilty in the Southern District of New York. I am ashamed of my weakness and my misplaced loyalty of the things I did for Mr. Trump in an effort to protect and promote him. I am ashamed that I chose to take part in concealing Mr. Trump's illicit acts rather than listening to my own conscience. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. As the many people that know me best would say, I am the person that they call at 3am if they needed help. And I proudly remember being the emergency contact for many of my children's friends when they were growing up because their parents knew that I would drop everything and care for them as if they were my own. Yet last fall, I pled guilty in federal court to felonies for the benefit of, at the direction of, and in coordination with individual number one, and for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. It is painful to admit that I was motivated by ambition at times. It is even more painful to admit that many times I ignored my conscience and acted loyal to a man when I should not have sitting here today. It seems unbelievable that I was so mesmerized by Donald Trump that I was willing to do things for him that I knew were absolutely wrong. For that reason, I have come here to apologize to my family, to my government, and to the American people. So yes, sir, I stand by the statement that I gave, but there was a history to
5: it. In your testimony, uh, you, have, you said you bought some some checks, is that right? You said you bought some checks. Yes, sir. Let me ask you about one of these. Um, This uh, from the Trump trust that holds the uh, president businesses. Can you tell me who signed uh, this check? I believe that the top top signature is Donald
4: Trump Jr. And And, the bottom signature. uh I believe is Alan Weisselberg's. And can you tell me the date of that check?
5: March 17th of 2017. Now wait, wait a minute, hold up. The date on the check is after President Trump held his big press conference claiming that he gave up control of his businesses. How could the president then, have arranged for you to get this check if he was supposedly playing no role in his business? Because the payments were
4: designed to
5: be paid over
4: the course of 12 months, and it was declared to be a retainer for services um, that would be provided for the year of 2017.
5: Was there a retainer agreement? There is no retainer agreement. Would Don Jr. or Mr. Weisselberg have more information about that? Mr.
4: Weisselberg, for sure, about the entire discussions and negotiations prior to the election and Don Jr. would have
5: cursory information. Now here's another one. This, this one appears to be signed by Donald Trump himself. Is that his signature? That is Donald Trump's signature. So let me make sure I understand. Donald Trump wrote you a check out of his personal account while he was serving as President of the United States of America to reimburse you for hush money payments to Ms. Clifford. Is that what you are telling the American people today? Yes, Mr. Chairman. One final question. The President claimed he knew nothing about these payments. His ethics filing said he owed nothing to you. Based on your conversations with him, is there any doubt in your mind that President Trump knew exactly what he was paying for?
4: There is no doubt in my mind and I truly believe there is no doubt in the mind of the
5: people of the United States of America. And these new documents that corroborate what you just told us. With that-
6: Moving on to a little later in 2016, a major WikiLeaks dump happens hours after the Access Hollywood tape is released. Do you believe or are you aware of Mr. Trump coordinating or signaling for this email dump?
4: I am unaware of that. I actually was not even in the country at the time of the Billy Bush um, tape. I was in London visiting my daughter.
6: Knowing how Mr. Trump operates with his winning at all costs mentality, do you Believe that he would cooperate or collude with a foreign power to win the presidency. Is, is he capable of that?
4: It calls on so much speculation, ma'am. It's, it would be unfair for me to. I understand, an but you have a
6: tremendous amount of experience. Given Mr. What Trump today. is all about winning, and, and he will your, do what is necessary and in within which opinion, to win. in your opinion and experience, would he? have the potential to cooperate or collude with a foreign power to win the presidency at all costs? Yes. Based on what you know, would Mr. Trump, or did he, lie about colluding and coordinating with the Russians at any point during the campaign?
4: So as I stated in my testimony, um, I wouldn't use the word colluding. Was there something odd about the back and forth praise with President Putin? Yes, but I'm not really sure that I can answer that question um, in terms of collusion. I was not part of the campaign. Um, I don't know the other conversations that Mr. Trump had with other individuals. There's just so many dots that all seem to lead Back at this credibility, you
3: want us to make sure that we think of you as a real philanthropic icon, that you're about justice, that you're the person that somebody would call at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, they wouldn't. Not at all. You saw Mr. Comer uh, dissect you. Right in front of this committee, you conflicted your testimony, sir. You're a pathological liar. You don't know truth from, from, from falsehood. <laughs> sir, it's I'm overnight. sorry, are you, you, know, are you referring to time. me or the president? Hey, this is my time. <laughs> are I'll, you referring to me, sir, or the president? When I ask you a question, yes. I'll ask for an answer. Sure. Now, are you familiar with Rule 35 of the Federal Rules and Criminal Procedures? I am now. Oh. Hmm. So the committee understands that you've been in contact with the Southern District of New York. Is that true?
4: I am in constant contact with the Southern District of New York regarding ongoing investigations. And part of that application is to reduce sentencing time. Is it not? Yes. There is a possibility. Yes. The answer is yes. No, it's not, sir. Yes, it is. Okay. It is. It's not.
3: And so testimony here could actually help you out in getting your sentence lessened. Isn't that true?
4: I'm not really sure how my appearance here today is providing substantial information that the Southern District can use for the creation of a case. Now, if there is something that this group can do for me, I would gladly welcome it.
3: Well, I, 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 I got to tell you, you know, America's watching you. I've been getting texted, right and left saying, how can anybody listen to this pathological person? He's got a problem. He doesn't th- know fact from fiction. And that's what's sad here, is, is that you didn't do this for Donald Trump, to protect Donald Trump. You did it for you. This is all, no, this is all about you. This is all about this Twitter feed, and, and, and you know, let me read one of those, another one. Women who love and support Michael Cohen, strong, pitbull, sex symbol, non, no nonsense, business oriented, and ready to make a difference, had to followers. Make a, 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 ready to make a difference against the law. That's pretty sad. You know, uh, it, it, over and over again, you know, we want to have trust. It's built on the premise that we're truthful, that we come forward. But there's no truth with you whatsoever. That's why that's important to you to look up here and and look at the old adage that our moms taught us. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Mm. No one should ever listen to you and give you credibility. It's sad. It's sad that we have come. In fact, I want to quote the chairman's very words. This is a real, hold on.
5: Sad state,
7: Mr. Cohen, you have admitted to lying on your taxes. According to federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, you also lied to banks to get loans. The prosecutors wrote, quote, to secure loans, Cohen falsely understated the amount of debt he was carrying and omitted information for his personal financial statements to induce a bank to lend based on incomplete information, end quote. Is that correct? That's correct. You lied on financial documents. So you lied to financial institutions in order to secure loans. So we've established that you lie on your taxes, you lie to banks, and you have been convicted of lying to Congress. It seems to me that there's not much that you won't lie about when you stand to gain from it. In fact, the prosecutors for the Southern District of New York noted that each of your crimes, quote, bear common sense of characteristics which each involving deception and being motivated by your personal greed and ambition. Is your appearance here today motivated by your desire to remain in the spotlight for your personal benefit? No, ma'am. You have sought out ways to rehabilitate your image from tax evader, Bank Swindler, and all-around liar to an honorable truthful man by appearing before cable news. I'm concerned you could be using your story and this congressional platform for your personal benefit, such as a desire to make money from book deals. So can you commit under oath that you have not and will not pursue a book or movie deal based on your experiences working for the president? No. You cannot commit to making I, money off of a book or movie deal based on your work.
4: No. What I just what, there's two parts to your question. The first part of your question, you asked me whether or not I had spoken to people regarding a possible book deal, and I have. And I've spoken to people who have sought me out regarding a movie deal. No,
7: I didn't ask you if you'd to anybody. That was the first anybody. part of your I said, Can you commit? under oath that you will not that you have not and will not pursue a book deal?
4: And I would not do that, no.
7: Okay, can you commit under oath that you will not pursue opportunities to provide commentary for a major news network based on your experiences working for the president? No. Can you commit under oath that you will not pursue political office in the state of New York? No. So you don't commit to Uh, changing your ways, basically, because you want to continue to use your background as a liar, a cheater, a convicted liar, to make money. That's what you want to do.
4: And that's going to get me a book deal and a movie deal and television and a a spot on television? I I don't think so.
7: Well, it appears that it will. I yield my time, remainder of my time, Mr. Chairman, to... In our committee staff search of documents
2: provided by the White House that were otherwise redacted or already in the public, and I guess the White House thought that was funny, they made one mistake, the White House. There was an email from a special assistant to the president to a deputy White House counsel, and the email is dated May 16, 2017, and it says, and I quote, POTUS, meaning the president, requested a meeting on Thursday with Michael Cohen and Jay Sekulow. Any idea what this might be about, end quote. Do you recall being asked to come to the White House honor around that time? With Mr. Sekolo?
4: May of 2017. Off the top of my head, sir, I don't. Um, I recall being in the White House with Jay Sekolo, and it was in regard to the, um, the documents the document production, as well as my appearance before the House Select Intel, um, but I'm not sure if that specifically. Well, that's that, but that, what I will do is I will check uh, all my records, and I'm more than happy to provide you with any documentation uh, or um, a response to this question. Well, that, that's you sort of touch on the presumably the purpose
2: of the discussion, at least among others. This occurred. This meeting uh, occurred. Just before your testimony before the Select Committee on Intelligence here in the House, is that correct?
4: I believe so, yes.
2: Was that a topic of conversation with the President himself?
4: If this is the specific instance that I was there with Mr. Sekolo,
2: yes. So you had a conversation with the President of the United States about your impending testimony before the House Intelligence Committee, is that correct?
4: That's correct. What was the nature of that conversation? He wanted me to cooperate he also wanted just to just ensure, by making the statement, and I said it in my testimony, there is no Russia, there is no collusion, um, there is no, um, there is no uh, deal. He goes, it's all a witch hunt, and it's, he goes, this, this stuff has to end. Did you take those comments to be
2: suggestive of what might flavor your testimony?
4: Sir, he's been saying that to me for many, many months. And at the end of the day, I knew exactly what he wanted me to say. And why was Mr. sekolo in the meeting? Because he was going to be representing Mr. Trump um, going forward as one of his personal attorneys in this matter. So it was sort of a handoff meeting?
2: Correct. Um, in any way, final question, did the president in any way, from your point of view, coach you in terms of how to respond to questions or the content
4: of your testimony before a House committee? Again, it's, it's a difficult answer because he doesn't tell you what he wants. What he does is, again, Michael, there's no Russia, there's no collusion, there's no involvement, there's no interference. I know what he means because I've been around him for so long. So if You're asking me whether or not that's the message that's staying on point, that's the party line that he created, that so many others are now touting. Yes, that's the message that he wanted to reinforce. Gentleman, question
2: concerns uh, your relationship with the court. Um, Do you expect, um, I mean, right now, I think you're, you're sentenced to three years, correct? That's correct. Do you expect any time... Uh, using this testimony, other testimony, after you get done doing whatever you're going to do this week, do you ever expect to go back and ask for any sort of reduction in sentence?
4: Yes, there are ongoing investigations currently being conducted that have nothing to do with this committee or Congress that I am assisting in, and it is for the benefit of a Rule 35 motion, yes. So you expect? And perhaps what you testify here today will affect going
2: back and reducing this, what we think is a relatively light three-year sentence. You you expect to go back and ask for a further reduction. Based off of my appearance
4: here today? Well, based upon whatever you do between now and and your request for The Rule 35 motion is in the complete hands of the Southern District of New York. And the way the Rule 35 motion works is what you're supposed to do is provide them with information that leads to ongoing investigations. I am currently working with them right now on several other issues of investigation that concerns them that they're looking at. If those investigations become fruitful, then there is a possibility for a Rule 35 motion. And I don't know what the benefit in terms of time would be, but this congressional hearing today is not going to be the basis of a Rule 35 motion. I wish it was, but it's not.
8: On February 13, 2018, Mr. Cohen, you sent a statement to the reporters that said, quote, I used my own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to Ms. Stephanie Clifford, and neither the Trump Organization nor the Trump campaign was party to the transaction with Ms. Clifford, and neither reimbursed me for the payment, either directly or indirectly. Was the statement false?
4: The statement is not false. I purposefully left out Mr. Trump individually from that statement.
8: Okay. Uh, Why did you say it that way?
4: Because that's what was discussed to do between myself, Mr. Trump, and
8: Alan Weisselberg. So it was carefully worded? Yes, ma'am. Great. Mr. Cohen, a, per- a reporter for the magazine Vanity Fair has reported that she interviewed you the very next day on February 14th, 2018, about the payment and reimbursement. And she wrote, quote, last February 14th, I interviewed Cohen in his office about the statement he gave the FEC in which he said Trump didn't know about the stormy payment or reimburse him for it. Do you recall this meeting with the reporter? I do. The reporter also wrote, Trump called while I was there. I couldn't hear much, but he wanted to go over what the public messaging would be. Is that accurate? It is Did the president call you while you were having a meeting with the reporter? Yes. Did the president call you to coordinate on public messaging about the payments to Ms. Clifford's in or around February 2018? Yes. What did the president ask or suggest that you say about the payments or reimbursements?
4: He was not knowledgeable of these reimbursements, and he wasn't knowledgeable of my actions.
8: He asked you
7: to say that? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, How many times did... Mr. Trump asked you to threaten an individual or entity on his behalf?
4: Quite a few times. 50 times? More. 100 times? More. 200 times? More. 500 times? Probably. Over the the 10 years? Over
7: the 10 years, he asked you...
4: And when you say threaten, I'm talking with litigation or um, an argument with... um,
7: Intimidation.
4: A, a, a nasty reporter that has, is writing an article.
9: I want to... Talk to you about this intimidation of witness. Mr. Cohen, you were initially scheduled to testify before the House Oversight Committee on February the 7th, but your legal team delayed your testimony, quoting, ongoing threats against your family from the President and Attorney Giuliani. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. And then on November 29th, after you admitted that the president's negotiations over a real estate project in Russia continue well through the summer before the 2016 election, President Trump called you quote, a weak person, and accused you of lying. And then on December 16th, after 18, 2018, after you disclosed that it was the president who directed you to arrange hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal to conceal his extramarital affairs, he called you, the president of the United States, a rat. Mr. Cohen, why do you feel or believe that the president is repeatedly attacking you, you are stating that you feel intimidated, asking us to protect you, following your cooperation with law enforcement.
4: When you have access to 60 plus million people that follow you on social media and you have the ability within which to spark some action by individuals that follow, that follow him, And from his own words, that he can walk down Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and get away with it. It's never comfortable when the President of the United States... What do you think he can do to you? A lot. And it's not just him. It's those people that follow him and his rhetoric. What is a lot? I don't know. I don't walk with my wife if we go to a restaurant or... we. Go somewhere. I don't walk with my children. I make them go before me because I'm. I have fear, and it's the same fear that I had before when he initially decided to drop that tweet in my cell phone. I receive some, and I'm sure you you'll understand. I receive some tweets. I receive some uh, Facebook Messenger. All sorts of social media attacks upon me, whether it's the private, direct message that I've had to turn over to Secret Service, because they are the most vile, disgusting statements that anyone can ever receive, and when it starts to affect your children, that's when it really affects you.
9: On January 20, 2019, Mr. Giuliani called your father-in-law, quote, a criminal and said that he may have ties to, to organized crime. Mr. Cohen, do you believe that the president, Mr. Giuliani, publicly targeted your father-in-law as an effort to intimidate you? Can you elaborate? Why is your father-in-law being pulled into this?
4: I don't know the answer to that. My father-in-law was in the clothing business. Um, Came to this country because they, in 1972-73, the expulsion of Jews from the Ukraine. He came here. Uh, to this country. He worked hard, and he's now enjoying his retirement. Never in my life did I think that Mr. Trump would do something so disgraceful. And he's attacking him because he knows I care about my family. And to hurt me, he's trying to hurt them. Interestingly enough, my father-in-law's biggest investments happened to be in a Trump property, so it just doesn't make any sense to me.
9: I want to be clear, any effort to prevent a witness from testifying in front of Congress is against the law. I want to be real clear about that. And as the chairman has said, retaliating against witnesses and threatening their families and members is a textbook mob tactic that does not benefit the president of the United States or this country. And I want to be on the record, this hearing is not about discrediting the president. It's about the awful office that we take as members of Congress to have checks and balances and to meet the laws and the policies of this country to serve thank you.
1: (sighs) Heavy stuff. What's so strange about this testimony to me is the reaction from Republicans. This is Trump's former lawyer, and they're busy tearing apart his motivations and his credibility as if it reflects on Trump himself in no way whatsoever. Cohen has nothing left to lose and faces jail time. Regardless of how Republicans feel about Cohen, he reflects upon everybody else that Trump has brought into his circle. The man who claimed he only hired the best people has found himself behind a revolving door of people, one after another arrested and indicted and charged with crimes. What else is there to even say? It's that simple, but in the mind of a Trump supporter, it's the entire world against him. It's all of the intelligence communities and literally everyone across the political spectrum other than Trump-supporting Republicans who are all part of some witch hunt to take Trump down and for what? for no other reason that they don't like him. It's completely insane, and they're a cult, and the sooner this presidency is put to an end, the sooner the country can start shoveling up the pieces of its shattered, collective sanity and become something resembling a respectable nation again. This next track is another deep cut. This is Who Am I? The Animatrix Cut by Peace Orchestra featuring Hubert Tubbs. I've mentioned the Animatrix on this show before, particularly the shorts The Second Renaissance 1 and 2, which tell the story of the rise of the machines and how the world of the Matrix came to be. This is Who Am I? The Animatrix Cut on The Joe Man Show. Enjoy. (whistles) Enjoy. You're tuned into the Joe Man Show. I'm Joe Man. That track was Who Am I from the Animatrix soundtrack that came out back in 2003. And my mind's been on the early 2000s a lot lately and what a pivotal time it was for the country and for the world. I've been watching The Sopranos and I just got to season 4, the season after 9/11 when the clip of the Twin Towers in Tony Soprano's rearview mirror is replaced with an updated Manhattan skyline. I've also been revisiting a lot of the 9/11 footage. It still feels like it was yesterday. But the thing that really disturbs me now is that we're going to be witness to and experience firsthand so much worse before our time on this earth is done. The collapse of Western civilization, whether by the hand of the climate or war or an economic boom and bust or more likely an amalgamation of all of the above, will eclipse anything that has ever happened in the history of this species. And we're like frogs in boiling water. We have the least qualified leaders. We have a rampant mental health crisis, a populace possibly less equipped to deal with the horrors that we're about to face than we were then. We're more hateful, more irrational, more paranoid, more deluded, and more out for blood. And unlike then, we're not going to have the luxury of just carrying on as normal while those in power wreak havoc on foreign nations. We're gonna be in the shit ourselves. Literally all of our worst nightmares are about to come true and it's like nobody even fucking cares. None of us are ever safe. Anywhere. That's not paranoia. That's the truth. Read Deep Adaptation, a map for navigating climate tragedy. When all that's left are the billionaires and everybody else, and money loses its value, and people are starving, and millions are being forced to migrate, you think it's going to be two buildings having planes flown into them that we'll be filming with our smartphones while everyone around us is screaming? 9-11 was child's play compared to where we're headed. And people act like I'm crazy because I know it, because it eats at me, like an earwig digging into my brain. And because of it, I don't concern myself with lower levels of thinking that rely on capitalist fantasies anymore. Everyone thinks you're fucking crazy when you're elevated. Think I'm crazy. I don't give a shit. The evidence is on my side. And no, I'm not saying live in constant fear, though it could be argued that I do. I'm just saying, please, be prepared. Don't be ignorant, don't choose ignorance, don't just tell yourselves everything is going to be okay, because it's not, and that's a fucking stupid position at this point. Know that if you're young, it's going to be your duty to organize, take care of people, have steadfast morals, and stick to them when this shit goes down. There will be wolves, and there will be sheep, and then there will be monsters. But the thing that will collectively determine whether it turns out like Tom Clancy's The Division with organization and ranks or like The Last of Us with a bunch of crazy Tea Party fucks and Humvees just killing everybody in sight is all of us and how much time and effort and real thought we put into preparing and mobilizing for the future. We're not going to be sitting on our phones posting memes in 10 years. We're just not. Let that fantasy go. It's time to wake up. But I fear that the case for denial might be too strong. These thoughts are more often than not met with silence or scoffed at or ignored or outright rejected. To quote Morpheus, many of you are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system that you will fight to protect it. But the system has failed, and everybody needs to face that, feel that, sit with it, swallow it, soak it in, as miserably uncomfortable as it is, and let it control the course of action. It's the only way we will leave anything worthwhile behind. We can't keep fucking around. We have to get moving now. One of the top comments in one of the videos of 9-11 that I was watching is this by a user Vortigan 7 It says, Dear USA, do you remember these days right after 9-11? Do you remember how unified you all were in defiance of a common enemy? Remember how you all stood shoulder to shoulder as the rest of us in the free world stood right alongside you? Have you taken a look at yourselves lately? Closer to a race war than ever before and tearing yourselves apart over mirages and going after shadows of history. The 3,000 of 9 11 are weeping in their graves. You're tuned into the Joe Man Show. We'll be right back. tuned into, you guessed it, the Joe Man show on KUHS Denver. I am, you guessed it, your host, Joe Man. That last song was Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, probably one of my favorite songs of all time. It never fails to set a certain type of melancholy mood regardless of what you're talking about, as long as mortality is on the table. Uh, Anyway, let's tackle the subject on a lot of people's minds, socialism. Socialism, socialism, socialism. Let's talk about that. And let's uh, let's start with the cliche, socialists just want free stuff. Uh, Or we just want all the stuff you were able to afford in 1972 working part-time at a gas station, Albert. Inflation hasn't adequately been addressed in at least half a century. Most millennials I know, who aren't either living with or off of their parents, have to work two or more full-time jobs and go to school, and oftentimes still have to get help from family, and might be in debt for the rest of their lives, and spend the five minutes of free time they have a week lamenting existence on social media, or turn to drugs and or alcohol to escape the miserable futility of this ass-backwards capitalist hellscape. Baby boomers failed us all. One in four millennials live with their parents. Only 14% of millennial homeowners didn't have help from their parents. We didn't fall out of thin air. You want to blame the internet? Cool. You invented it. You want to blame our lack of work ethic for which there is no tangible evidence? Cool. Blame your cold stoic parenting and your 50% divorce rate. This socialism boogeyman created by the right is the most self-sabotaging bunch of idiotic bootlicking bullshit on earth. Giving people healthcare in college isn't Nazism, you troglodytes. Democratic socialism is the new McCarthyist Red Scare, and it serves one purpose, to keep right-wingers convinced that very possible, very affordable, very fair and humane economic reform is actually an anti-American affront to freedom when it is in fact the exact opposite. The Republican elites know that more people going to college means fewer people stupid enough to support them, and more healthcare means more help for the poor, and that all of it is a direct threat to the military-industrial complex, the one and only surplus in this country. To quote Noam Chomsky, the point of public relations slogans like support our troops is that they don't mean anything. That's the whole point of good propaganda. You want to create a slogan that nobody is going to be against, and I suppose everybody will be for, because nobody knows what it means, because it doesn't mean anything. But its crucial value is that it diverts your attention from a question that does mean something, like do you support our policy? And that's the one you're not allowed to talk about. So-called moderates need to wake the fuck up. Literally no one on the left is your enemy, unless you're a billionaire exploiting workers and raping our dying planet's resources. This revolution is the last chance we have at saving this country and potentially all life on Earth. Right-wingers are the true enemy of the people, and they need to be stopped. Anyway, on a lighter note, this next track is a Joe Man Show exclusive preview of something I've got coming out in the near future. This is my original track, These Dreams, and it will be releasing as part of my Dissolution EP, coming soon on Karma Studio. This is Joe Man, These Dreams. Enjoy. that was These Dreams off of my upcoming Dissolution EP on Karma Studio. Earlier in the show, I mentioned a paper by the name of Deep Adaptation, a map for navigating climate tragedy. The paper was written by Professor Jem Bendel, and was recently posted in an article on Vice as the paper has gone viral for painting an incredibly dire, bleak vision of the future for mankind. But unlike many other pieces written about climate change, Bendel's comes from the angle that scholars are in denial about the evidence showing it might be too late to prevent total life-altering chaos and destruction. I'd like to read this paper in its entirety, which I will do now. Abstract. The purpose of this conceptual paper is to provide readers with an opportunity to reassess their work and life in the face of an inevitable near-term social collapse due to climate change. The approach of the paper is to analyze recent studies on climate change and its implications for our ecosystems, economies, and societies as provided by academic journals and publications direct from research institutes. That synthesis leads to a conclusion there will be a near-term collapse in society with serious ramifications for the lives of readers. The paper reviews some of the reasons why collapse denial may exist, in particular, in the professions of sustainability research and practice, therefore leading to these arguments having been absent from these fields until now. The paper offers a new meta-framing of the implications for research, organizational practice, personal development, and public policy called the Deep Adaptation Agenda. Its key aspects of resilience, relinquishment, and restorations are explained. This agenda does not seek to build on existing scholarship on climate adaptation, as it is premised on the view that social collapse is now inevitable. The author believes this is one of the first papers in the sustainability management field to conclude that climate-induced societal collapse is now inevitable in the near term, and therefore to invite scholars to explore the implications. Introduction Can professionals in sustainability management policy and research, myself included, continue to work with the assumption or hope that we can slow down climate change or respond to it sufficiently to sustain our civilization? As disturbing information on climate change passed across my screen, this was the question I could no longer ignore, and therefore decided to take a couple of months to analyze the latest climate science. As I began to conclude that we can no longer work with that assumption or hope, I asked a second question. Have professionals in the sustainability field discussed the possibility that it is too late to avert an environmental catastrophe and the implications for their work? A quick literature review revealed that my fellow professionals have not been publishing work that explores or starts from that perspective. This led to a third question on why sustainability professionals are not exploring this fundamentally important issue to our whole field as well as our personal lives. To explore that, I drew on psychological analyses, conversations with colleagues, reviews of debates among environmentalists in social media, and self-reflection on my own reticence. Concluding that there is a need to promote discussion about the implications of a social collapse triggered by environmental catastrophe, I asked my fourth question on what are the ways that people are talking about collapse on social media. I identified a variety of conceptualizations and from that asked myself what could provide a map for people to navigate this extremely difficult issue. For that, I drew on a range of reading and experiences over my 25 years in the sustainability field to outline an agenda for what I have termed deep adaptation on climate change. The result of these five questions is an article that does not contribute to one set of literature or practice in the broad field of sustainability management and policy. Rather, it questions the basis for all the work in this field. It does not seek to add to the existing research policy and practice on climate adaptation, as I found that to be framed by the view that we can manage the impacts of a changing climate on our physical, economic, social, political, and psychological situations. Instead, this article may contribute to future work on sustainable management and policy as much by subtraction as by addition. By that, I mean the implication is for you to take a time to step back, to consider what if the analyses in these pages is true, to allow yourself to grieve, and to overcome enough of the typical fears we all have to find meaning in new ways of being and acting. That may be in the fields of academia or management, or could be in some other field that this realization leads you to. First, I briefly explain the paucity of research that considers or starts from social collapse due to environmental catastrophe and give acknowledgement to the existing work in this field that many readers may consider relevant. Second, I summarize what I consider to be the most important climate science of the last few years, and how it is leading more people to conclude that we face disruptive changes in the near term. Third, I explain how that perspective is marginalized within the professional environmental sector, and so invite you to consider the value of leaving mainstream views behind. Fourth, I outline the ways that people on relevant social networks are framing our situation as one of facing collapse, catastrophe, or extinction, and how these views trigger different emotions and ideas. Fifth, I outline a deep adaptation agenda to help guide discussions on what we might do once we recognize climate change is an unfolding tragedy. Finally, I make some suggestions for how this agenda could influence our future research and teaching in the sustainability field. As researchers and reflective practitioners, we have an opportunity and obligation to not just do what is expected by our employers and the norms of our profession, but also to reflect on the relevance of our work within wider society. I am aware that some people consider statements from academics that we now face inevitable near-term social collapse to be irresponsible due to the potential impact they may have on the motivation or mental health of people reading such statements. My research and engagement and dialogue on this topic, some of which I will outline in this paper, leads me to conclude the exact opposite. It is a responsible act to communicate this analysis now and invite people to support each other, myself included, in exploring the implications, including the psychological and spiritual implications. Locating this study within academia. When discussing negative outlooks on climate change and its implications for human society, the response is often to seek insight through placing this information in contexts. That context is often assumed to be found in balancing it with other information. As the information on our climate predicament is so negative, the balance is often found in highlighting more positive information about progress on the sustainability agenda. This process of seeking to balance out is a habit of the informed and reasoning mind, yet that does not make it a logical means of deliberation if positive information being shared does not relate to the situation being described by the negative information. For instance, discussing progress in the health and safety policies of the White Star Line with the captain of the Titanic as it sank into the icy waters of the North Atlantic would not be a sensible use of time. Yet given that this balancing is often the way people respond to discussion of the scale and speed of our climate tragedy, let us first recognize the positive news from the broader sustainability agenda. Certainly, there has been some progress on environmental issues in past decades, from reducing pollution to habitat preservation to waste management. Much valiant effort has been made to reduce carbon emissions over the last 20 years, one part of climate action officially termed mitigation. There have been many steps forward on climate and carbon management, from awareness to policies to innovations, and larger and quicker steps must be taken. That is helped by the agreement reached in December 2015 at the COP21 Intergovernmental Climate Summit, and now that there is significant Chinese engagement on the issue. To support the maintenance and scaling of these efforts is essential. In addition, increasing action is occurring on adaptation to climate change, such as flood defenses, planning laws, and irrigation systems. Whereas we can praise these efforts, their existence does not matter to an analysis of our overall predicament with climate change. Rather than building from existing theories on sustainable business, this paper is focusing on a phenomenon. That phenomenon is not climate change per se, but the state of climate change in 2018, which I will argue from a secondary review of research now indicates a near-term social collapse. The gap in the literature that this paper may begin to address is the lack of discussion within management studies and practice of the end of the idea that we can either solve or cope with climate change. In the Sustainability Account Management and Policy Journal, which this paper was originally submitted to, there has been no discussion of this topic before, apart from my own co-authored paper. Three papers mention climate adaptation in passing, with just one focusing on it by considering how to improve irrigated agriculture. Organization and Environment is a leading journal for discussion of the implications of climate for organizations and vice versa, where since the 1980s, both philosophical and theoretical positions on environment are discussed as well as organizational or management implications. However, the journal has not published any research papers exploring theories and implications of social collapse due to environmental catastrophe. Three articles mention climate adaptation. Two of those have adaptation as a context but explore other issues as their main focus, specifically social learning and network learning. Only one paper in that journal looks at climate adaptation as its main focus and the implications for organization. With a helpful summary of how difficult the implications are for management, the paper does not explore the implications of a widespread social collapse. Away from management studies, the field of climate adaptation is wide. To illustrate, a search on Google Scholar returns over 40,000 hits for the term climate adaptation. In answering the questions I set for myself in this paper, I will not be reviewing that existing field in scholarship. One might ask, why not? The answer is that the field of climate adaptation is oriented around ways to maintain our current societies as they face manageable climactic perturbations. The concept of deep adaptation resonates with that agenda where we accept that we will need to change, but breaks with it by taking as its starting point the inevitability of social collapse, as I will explain below. <clears throat> our non-linear world. This paper is not the venue for a detailed examination of all the latest climate science. However, I reviewed the scientific literature from the past few years and where there was still large uncertainty, then sought the latest data from research institutes. In this section, I summarize the findings to establish the premise that it is time we consider the implications of it being too late to avert a global environmental catastrophe in the lifetimes of people alive today. The simple evidence of global ambient temperature rises undisputable. 17 of the 18 warmest years in the 136 year record all have occurred since 2001 and global temperatures have increased by 0.9 degrees Celsius since 1880. The most surprising warming is in the Arctic, where the 2016 land surface temperature was 2 degrees Celsius above the 1981-2010 to average, breaking the previous records of 2007, 2011, and 2015 by 0.8 degrees Celsius, representing a 3.5 degrees Celsius increase since the record began in 1900. This data is fairly easy to collate and not widely challenged, so swiftly finds its way into academic publications. However, to obtain a sense of the implications of this warning on environment and society, one needs real-time data on the current situation and the trends that it may infer. Climate change and its associated impacts have, as we will see, been significant in the last few years. Therefore, to appreciate the situation, we need to look directly to the research institutes, researchers, and their websites for the most recent information. That means using, but not relying solely on, academic journal articles and the slowly produced reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. This international institution has done useful work but has a track record of significantly underestimating the pace of change, which has been more accurately predicted over past decades by eminent climate scientists. Therefore, in this review, I will draw upon a range of sources with a focus on data since 2014. That is because, unfortunately, data collected since then is often consistent with non-linear changes to our environment. Non-linear changes are of central importance to understanding climate change, as they suggest both that impacts will be far more rapid and severe than predictions based on linear projections, and that the changes no longer correlate with the rate of anthropogenic carbon emissions, in other words, runaway climate change. The warming of the Arctic reached wider public awareness as it has begun destabilizing winds in the higher atmosphere, specifically the jet stream in the northern polar vortex, leading to extreme movements of warmer air north into the Arctic and cold air to the south. At one point in early 2018, temperature recordings from the Arctic were 20 degrees Celsius above the average for that date. The warming Arctic has led to drastic loss in sea ice, the average September extent of which has been decreasing at a rate of 13.2% per decade since 1980, so that over two-thirds of the ice cover has gone. This data is made more concerning by changes in sea ice volume, which is an indicator of resilience of the ice sheet to future warming and storms. It was at the lowest it has ever been in 2017, continuing a consistent downward trend. Given a reduction in the reflection of the sun's rays from the surface of the white ice, an ice-free Arctic is predicted to increase warming globally by a substantial degree. Writing in 2014, scientists calculated this change is already equivalent to 25% of the direct forcing of temperature increase from CO2 during the past 30 years. That means we could remove a quarter of the cumulative CO2 emissions of the last three decades, and it would already be outweighed by the loss of the reflective power of Arctic sea ice. One of the most eminent climate scientists in the world, Peter Wadhams, believes an ice-free Arctic will occur one summer in the next few years and that it will likely increase by 50% the warming caused by the CO2 produced by human activity. In itself, that renders the calculations of the IPCC redundant along with the targets and proposals of the UNFCCC. Between 2002 and 2016, Greenland shed approximately 280 gigatons of ice per year and the island's lower elevation and coastal areas experienced up to 13.1 feet or 4 meters of ice mass loss, expressed in equivalent water height over a 14-year period. Along with other melting of land ice and the thermal expansion of water, this has contributed to a global mean sea level rise of about 3.2 millimeters a year, representing a total increase of over 80 millimeters since 1993. Rating a figure per year implies a linear increase, which is what has been assumed by the IPCC and others in making their predictions. However, recent data shows that the upward trend is non-linear. That means sea level is rising due to non-linear increases in the melting of land-based ice. The observed phenomena of actual temperatures and sea levels are greater than what the climate models over the past decades were predicting for our current time. They are consistent with nonlinear changes in our environment that then trigger uncontrollable impacts on human habitat and agriculture with subsequent complex impacts on social, economic, and political systems. I will return to the implications of these trends after listing some more of the impacts that are already being reported as occurring today. Already, we see impacts on storm, drought, and flood frequency and strength due to increased volatility from more energy in the atmosphere. We are witnessing negative impacts on agriculture. Climate change has reduced growth in crop yields by 1-2% to per decade over the past century. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization reports that weather abnormalities related to climate change are costing billions of dollars a year and growing exponentially. For now, the impact is calculated in money, but the nutritional implications are key. We are also seeing impacts on marine ecosystems. About half of the world's coral reefs have died in the last 30 years due to a mixture of reasons through higher water temperatures and acidification due to higher CO2 concentrations in ocean water being key. In 10 years prior to 2016, the Atlantic Ocean soaked up 50% more carbon dioxide than it did in the previous decade, measurably speeding up the acidification of the ocean. This study is indicative of oceans worldwide and the consequent acidification degrades the base of the marine food web, thereby reducing the ability of fish populations to reproduce themselves across the globe. Meanwhile, warming oceans are already reducing the population size of some fish species. Compounding these threats to human nutrition, in some regions we are witnessing an exponential rise in the spread of mosquito and tick-borne viruses as temperatures become more conducive to them. Let's take a quick break. This is Bad Moon Rising by CCR. Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. That was CCR Bad Moon Rising, another great apocalyptic track. I'd like to go ahead and just dive back into Jim Bendel's paper, Deep Adaptation, about uh, climate catastrophe. I'm in a new section here. This section is titled Looking Ahead. Here we go. The impacts I just summarized are already upon us, and even without increasing their severity, they will nevertheless increase their impacts on our ecosystems, soils, seas, and our societies over time. It is difficult to predict future impacts, but it is more difficult not to predict them. Because the reported impacts today are at the very worst end of predictions being made in the early 1990s, back when I first studied climate change and model-based climate predictions as an undergraduate at Cambridge University. The models today suggest an increase in storm number and strength. They predict a decline of normal agriculture, including the compromising of mass production of grains in the northern hemisphere and intermittent disruption to rice production in the tropics. That includes predicted declines in the yields of rice, wheat, and corn in China by 36.25%, 18.26%, and 45.10% respectively by the end of this century. Naresh Kumar et al., 2014, Project A6-23 and 15-25% to reduction in the wheat yield in India during the 2050s and 2080s, respectively, under the mainstream projected climate change scenarios. The loss of coral and the acidification of the seas is predicted to reduce fisheries productivity by over half. The rates of sea level rise suggest they may soon become exponential, which will pose significant problems for billions of people living in coastal zones. Environmental scientists are now describing our current era as the sixth mass extinction event in the history of planet Earth, with this one caused by us about half of all plants and animal species in the world's most biodiverse places are at risk of extinction due to climate change. The World Bank reported in 2018 that countries needed to prepare for over 100 million internally displaced people due to the effects of climate change, in addition to millions of international refugees. Despite you, me, and most people we know in this field already hearing data on this global situation, it is useful to recap simply to invite a sober acceptance of our current predicament. It has led to some commentators to describe our time as a new geological era shaped by humans, the Anthropocene. It has led others to conclude that we should be exploring how to live in an unstable post-sustainability situation. This context is worth being reminded of as it provides the basis upon which to assess the significance or otherwise of all the praiseworthy efforts that have been underway and reported in some detail in this and other journals over the past decade. I will now offer an attempt at a summary of that broader context insofar as it might frame our future work on sustainability. The politically permissible scientific consensus is that we need to stay beneath two degrees of warming of global ambient temperatures to avoid dangerous and uncontrollable levels of climate change with impacts such as mass starvation, disease, flooding, storm destruction, forced migration, and war. That figure was agreed by governments that were dealing with many domestic and international pressures from vested interests, particularly corporations." It is therefore not a figure that many scientists would advise, given that many ecosystems will be lost and many risks created if we approach 2 degrees global ambient warming. The IPCC agreed in 2013 that if the world does not keep further anthropogenic emissions below a total of 800 billion tons of carbon, we are not likely to keep average temperatures below 2 degrees of global averaged warming. That left about 270 billion tons of carbon to burn. Total global emissions remain at around 11 billion tons of carbon per year, which is 37 billion tons of CO2. Those calculations appear worrying, but give the impression we have at least a decade to change. It takes significant time to change economic systems, so if we are not already on the path to dramatic reductions, it is unlikely we will keep within the carbon limit. With an increase of carbon emissions of 2% in 2017, the decoupling of economic activity from emissions is not yet making a net dent in global emissions so we are not on the path to prevent going over 2 degrees warming through emissions reductions. In any case, the IPCC estimate of a carbon budget was controversial, with many scientists who estimated that existing CO2 in the atmosphere should already produce global ambient temperature rises over 5 degrees Celsius, and so there is no carbon budget. It has already been overspent. That situation is why some experts have argued for more work on removing carbon from the atmosphere with machines. Unfortunately, the current technology needs to be scaled by a factor of two million within two years, all provided by renewables alongside massive emission cuts to reduce the amount of heating already locked into the system. Biological approaches to carbon capture appear far more promising. These include planting trees, restoring soils used in agriculture, and growing seagrass and kelp, amongst other approaches. They also offer wider beneficial environmental and social side effects. Studies on seagrass and seaweed indicate we could be taking millions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere immediately and continually if we had a massive effort to restore seagrass meadows and to farm seaweed. The net sequestration effect is still being assessed but in certain environments will be significant. Research into management-intensive rotational grazing practices, or MIRG, also known as holistic grazing, show how a healthy grassland can restore carbon. A 2014 study measured annual per hectare increases in soil carbon at 8 tons per year on farms converted to these practices. The world uses about 3.5 billion hectares of land for pasture and fodder crops. Using the 8 tons figure above, converting a tenth of that land to MIRG practices would sequester a quarter of present emissions. In addition, no till methods of horticulture can sequester as much as two tons of carbon per hectare per year, so could also make significant contributions. It is clear, therefore, that our assessment of carbon budgets must focus as much on these agricultural systems as we do on emissions reductions. Clearly, a massive campaign and policy agenda to transform agriculture and restore ecosystems globally is needed right now. It will be a huge undertaking, undoing 60 years of developments in world agriculture. In addition, it means the conservation of our existing wetlands and forests must suddenly become successful after decades of failure across lands outside of geographically limited nature reserves. Even if such will emerges immediately, the heating and instability already locked into the climate will cause damage to ecosystems, so it will be difficult for such approaches to curb the global atmospheric carbon level. The reality that we have progressed too far already to avert disruptions to ecosystems is highlighted by the finding that if CO2 removal from the atmosphere could work at scale, it would not prevent massive damage to marine life, which is locked in for many years due to acidification from the dissolving of CO2 in the oceans." Despite the limitations of what humans can do to work with nature to encourage its carbon sequestration processes, the planet has been helping us out anyway. A global greening, quote-unquote, of the planet has significantly slowed the rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since the start of the century. Plants have been growing faster and larger due to higher CO2 levels in the air and warming temperatures that reduce the CO2 emitted by plants via respiration. The effects led the proportion of annual carbon emissions remaining in the air to fall from about 50% to 40% in the last decade. However, this process only offers a limited effect as the absolute level of CO2 in the atmosphere is continuing to rise, breaking the milestone of 400 parts per million in 2015. Given that changes in seasons, temperature extremes, flood, and drought are beginning to negatively affect ecosystems, the risk exists that this global greening effect may be reduced in time. These potential reductions in atmospheric carbon from natural and assisted biological processes is a flickering ray of hope in our dark situation. However, the uncertainty about their impact needs to be contrasted with the uncertain yet significant impact of increasing methane release in the atmosphere. It is a gas that enables far more trapping of heat from the sun's rays than CO2, but was ignored in most of the climate models over the past decades. The authors of the 2016 Global Methane Budget Report found that in the early years of this century, concentrations of methane rose by only about 0.5 ppb each year compared with 10 ppb in 2014 and 2015. Various sources were identified from fossil fuels to agriculture to melting permafrost. Given the contentiousness of this topic in the scientific community, it may even be contentious for me to say that there is no scientific consensus on the sources of current methane emissions or the potential risk and timing of significant methane releases from either surface and subsea permafrost. A recent attempt at consensus on methane risk from melting surface permafrost concluded methane release would happen over centuries or millennia, not this decade. Yet within three years, that consensus was broken by one of the most detailed experiments, which found that if the melting permafrost remains waterlogged, which is likely, then it produces significant amounts of methane within just a few years. The debate is now likely to be about whether other microorganisms might thrive in that environment to eat up the methane, and whether or not in time to reduce the climate impact. The debate about methane release from clathrate forms, or frozen methane hydrates, on the Arctic seafloor is even more contentious. In 2010, a group of scientists published a study that warned how the warming of the Arctic could lead to a speed and scale of methane release that would be catastrophic to life on Earth through atmospheric heating of over five degrees within just a few years of such a release. The study triggered a fierce debate, much of which was ill-considered, perhaps understandable given the shocking implications of this information. Since then, key questions at the heart of this scientific debate about what would amount to the probable extinction of the human race include the amount of time it will take for ocean warming to destabilize hydrates on the seafloor and how much methane will be consumed by aerobic and anaerobic microbes before it reaches the surface and escapes to the atmosphere. In a global review of this contentious topic, scientists concluded that there is not the evidence to predict a sudden release of catastrophic levels of methane in the near term. However, a key reason for their conclusion was the lack of data showing actual increases in atmospheric methane at the surface of the Arctic, which is partly the result of a lack of sensors collecting such information. Most ground-level methane measuring systems are in land— could that be why the unusual increases in atmospheric methane concentrations cannot be fully explained by existing sets from around the world? One way of calculating how much methane is probably coming from our oceans is to compare data from ground-level measurements, which are mostly but not entirely on land, with upper-atmosphere measurements, which indicate an averaging out of total sources. Data published by scientists from the Arctic News website indicates that in March 2018, at mid-altitudes, methane was around 1,865 parts per billion, which represents a 1.8% increase of 35 parts per billion from the same time in 2017, while surface measurements of methane increased by about 15 ppb in that time. Both figures are consistent with a nonlinear increase, potentially exponential, in atmospheric levels since 2007. That is worrying data in itself, but the more significant matter is the difference between the increase measured at ground and mid-altitudes. That is consistent with this added methane coming from our oceans, which could in turn be from methane hydrates. This closer look at the latest data on methane is worthwhile, given the critical risks to which it relates. It suggests that the recent attempt at a consensus that it is highly unlikely we will see near-term massive release of methane from the Arctic Ocean is sadly inconclusive. In 2017, scientists working on the eastern Siberian seashelf reported that the permafrost layer has thinned enough to risk destabilizing hydrates. That report of subsea permafrost destabilization in the east Siberian Arctic seashelf, the latest unprecedented temperatures in the Arctic, and the data in nonlinear rises in high atmosphere methane levels combine to make it feel like we are about to play Russian roulette with the entire human race with already two bullets loaded. Nothing is certain, but it is sobering that humanity has arrived at a situation of our own making where we now debate the strength of analyses of our near-term extinction this is serious stuff we're going to take another break real quick you're tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver we'll be right back you are tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I'm your host, Joe Man. That last track was Weird Al's Everything You Know Is Wrong, a uh, fittingly nihilistic perspective for, uh, for a song on this show. All right. We were moving into the next section of the deep adaptation paper. So uh, we'll just go ahead and do that. That section is called Apocalypse Uncertain. The truly shocking information on the trends in climate change and its impacts on ecology and society are leading some to call for us to experiment with geoengineering the climate, from fertilizing the oceans so they photosynthesize more CO2, to releasing chemicals in the upper atmosphere so the sun's rays are reflected. The unpredictability of geoengineering the climate, through the latter method, in particular the dangers of disturbances to seasonal rains that billions of people rely on, make it unlikely to be used. The potential natural geoengineering from increased sulfur releases from volcanoes due to isostatic rebound as weight on the Earth's crust is redistributed is not likely to make a significant contribution to Earth's temperatures for decades or centuries. It is a truism that we do not know what the future will be, but we can see trends. We do not know if the power of human ingenuity will help sufficiently to change the environmental trajectory that we are on. Unfortunately, the recent years of innovation, investment, and patenting indicate how human ingenuity has increasingly been channeled into consumerism and financial engineering. We might pray for time, but the evidence before us suggests that we are set for disruptive and uncontrollable levels of climate change, bringing starvation, destruction, migration, disease, and war. We do not know for certain how disruptive the impacts of climate change will be or where we'll be most affected, especially as economic and social systems will respond in complex ways. But the evidence is mounting that the impacts will be catastrophic to our livelihoods and the societies that we live within. Our norms of behavior that we call our, quote, civilization, unquote, may also degrade. When we contemplate this possibility, it can seem abstract. The words I ended the previous paragraph with may seem, subconsciously at least, to be describing a situation to feel sorry about as we witness scenes on TV or online. But when I say starvation, destruction, migration, disease, and war, I mean in your own life. With the power down, soon you wouldn't have water coming out of your tap. You will depend on your neighbors for food and some warmth. You will become malnourished. You won't know whether to stay or go. You will fear being violently killed before starving to death. These descriptions may seem overly dramatic. Some readers might consider them an unacademic form of writing, which would be an interesting comment on why we even write at all. I chose the words above as an attempt to cut through the sense that this topic is purely theoretical. As we are considering here a situation where the publishers of this journal would no longer exist, the electricity to read its outputs won't exist, and a profession to educate won't exist, I think it's time we break some of the conventions of this format. However, some of us may take pride in upholding the norms of the current society, even amidst collapse. Even though some of us might believe in the importance of maintaining norms of behavior as indicators of shared values, others will consider that the probability of collapse means that effort at reforming our current system is no longer the pragmatic choice. My conclusion to this situation has been that we need to expand our work on sustainability to consider how communities, countries, and humanity can adapt to the coming troubles. I have dubbed this the deep adaptation agenda to contrast it with the limited scope of current climate adaptation activities. My experience is that a lot of people are resistant to the conclusions I have just shared. So before explaining the implications, let us consider some of the emotional and psychological responses to the information I have just summarized. It would not be unusual to feel a bit affronted, disturbed, or saddened by the information and arguments I have just shared. In the past few years, many people have said to me that it can't be too late to stop climate change because if it was, how would we find the energy to keep on striving for change? With such views, a possible reality is denied because people want to continue their striving. What does that tell us? The striving is based in a rationale of maintaining self-identities related to espoused values. It is understandable why that happens. If one has always thought of oneself as having self-worth through promoting the public good, then information that initially appears to take away that self-image is difficult to assimilate. That process of strategic denial to maintain striving and identity is easily seen in online debates about the latest climate science. One particular case is illustrative. In 2017, the New York Magazine published an article that drew together the latest data and analysis of what the implications of rapid climate warming would be on ecosystems and humanity. Unlike the many dry academic articles on these subjects, this popular article sought to describe these processes in visceral ways. The reaction of some environmentalists to this article did not focus on the accuracy of the descriptions or what might be done to reduce some of the worst effects that were identified in the article. Instead, they focused on whether such ideas should be communicated. Communicated to the general public. Climate scientist Michael Mann warned against presenting the problem as unsolvable and feeding in a sense of doom, inevitability, and hopelessness. Environmental journalist Alex Steffen in 2017 tweeted that dropping the dire truth on unsupported readers does not produce action but fear. In a blog post, Daniel Aldana Cohen, an assistant sociology professor working on climate politics, called the piece climate disaster porn. Their reactions reflect what some people have said to me in professional environmental circles. The argument made is that to discuss the likelihood and nature of social collapse due to climate change is irresponsible because it might trigger hopelessness amongst the general public. I always thought it odd to restrict our own exploration of reality and censor our own sense-making due to our ideas about how our conclusions might come across to others. Given that this attempt at censoring was so widely shared in the environmental field in 2017, it deserves some closer attention." I see four particular insights about what is happening when people argue we should not communicate to the public the likelihood and the nature of the catastrophe we face. First, it is not untypical for people to respond to data in terms of what perspectives we wish for ourselves and others to have, rather than what the data may suggest is happening. That reflects an approach to reality in society that may be tolerable in times of plenty, but counterproductive when facing major risks. Second, bad news and extreme scenarios impact on human psychology. We sometimes overlook that the question of how they impact is a matter for informed discussion that can draw upon psychology and communications theories. Indeed, there are journals dedicated to environmental psychology. There is some evidence from social psychology to suggest that by focusing on impacts now, it makes climate change more proximate, which increases support for mitigation. That is not conclusive, and this field is one for further exploration. That serious scholars or activists would make a claim about impacts of communication without specific theory or evidence suggests that they are not actually motivated to know the effect on the public, but are attracted to a certain argument that explains their view. A third insight from the debates about whether to publish information on the probable collapse of our societies is that sometimes people can express a paternalistic relationship between themselves as environmental experts and other people whom they categorize as the public, quote unquote. That is related to the non-populist, anti-politics, technocratic attitude that has pervaded contemporary environmentalism. It is a perspective that frames the challenges as one of encouraging people to try harder to be nicer and better rather than coming together in solidarity to either undermine or overthrow a system that demands we participate in environmental degradation. A fourth insight is that hopelessness quote-unquote and its related emotions of dismay and despair are understandably feared but wrongly assumed to be entirely negative and to be avoided whatever the situation. Alex Stephan warned that despair is never helpful. However, the range of ancient wisdom traditions see a significant place for hopelessness and despair. Contemporary reflections on people's emotional and even spiritual growth as a result of their hopelessness and despair align with these ancient ideas. The loss of a capability a loved one or a way of life or the receipt of a terminal diagnosis have all been reported or personally experienced as a trigger for a new way of perceiving self and world with hopelessness and despair being a necessary step in the process in such contexts hope quote unquote is not a good thing to maintain as it depends on what one is hoping for When the debate raged about the value of the New York Magazine article, some commentators picked up on this theme. In abandoning hope that one way of life will continue, we open up space for alternative hopes, wrote Tommy Lynch in 2017 this question of valid and useful hope is something that we must explore much further. Leadership theorist Jonathan Gosling has raised the question of whether we need a more, quote, radical hope, unquote, in the context of climate change and a growing sense of, quote, things falling apart, unquote. He invites us to explore what we could learn from other cultures that have faced catastrophe. Examining the way Native American Indians coped with being moved on to reservations, Lear, in 2008, looked at what he calls the, quote, blind spot, unquote, of any culture, the inability to conceive of its own destruction and possible extinction he explored the role of forms of hope that involved neither denial nor blind optimism what makes this hope radical is that it is directed toward a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what it is he's quoted as saying he explains how some of the native american chiefs had a form of quote imaginative excellence unquote by trying to imagine what ethical values would be needed in their new lifestyle on the reservation he suggests that beside the standard alternatives of freedom or death in service of one's culture there is another way less grand yet demanding just as much courage the way of quote creative adaptation unquote this form of creatively constructed hope may be relevant to our western civilization as we confront disruptive climate change Such deliberations are few and far between in either the fields of environmental studies or management studies. It is to help break this semi-censorship of our own community of inquiry on sustainability that motivated me to write this article. Some scholarship has looked at the process of denial more closely. Drawing on sociologist Stanley Cohen Foster in 2015 identifies two subtle forms of denial, interpretive and implicative. If we accept certain facts but interpret them in a way that makes them, quote, safer, unquote, To our own personal psychology, it is a form of interpretive denial. If we recognize the troubling implications of these facts but respond by busying ourselves on activities that do not arise from a full assessment of the situation, then that is implicative denial. Foster argues that implicative denial is rife within the environmental movement from dipping into a local transition towns initiative, signing online petitions, or renouncing flying. There are endless ways for people to be, quote, doing something, unquote, without serious. Confronting the reality of climate change. There are three main factors that could be encouraging professional environmentalists in their denial that our societies will collapse in the near term. The first is the way the natural scientific community operates. Eminent climate scientist James Hansen has always been ahead of the conservative consensus in his analyses and predictions. Using the case study of sea level rise, he threw light on processes that lead to scientific reticence to conclude and communicate scenarios that would be disturbing to employers, funders, governments, and the public. A more detailed study of this process across issues and institutions found that climate change scientists routinely underestimate impacts by erring on the side of least drama combined with the norms of scientific analysis and reporting to be cautious and avoid bombast and the time it takes to fund research produce and publish peer reviewed scientific studies this means that the information available to environmental professionals about the state of the climate is not as frightening as it could be In this paper, I have had to mix information from peer-reviewed articles with recent data from individual scientists and their research institutions to provide the evidence which suggests we are now in a non-linear situation of climactic changes and effects. A second set of factors influencing denial may be personal. George Marshall summarized the insights from psychology on climate denial, including the interpretive and implicative denial of those who are aware but have not prioritized it. In particular, we are social beings and our assessment of what to do about information is influenced by our culture. Therefore, people often avoid voicing certain thoughts when they go against the social norm around them and or their social identity. Especially in situations of shared powerlessness, it can be perceived as safer to hide one's views and do nothing if it goes against the status quo. Marshall also explains how our typical fear of death means that we do not give our full attention to information that reminds us of that. According to anthropologist Ernest Becker in 1973, a fear of death lies at the center of all human belief. Marshall explains, The denial of death is a vital lie that leads us to invest our efforts into our cultures and social groups to obtain a sense of permanence and survival beyond our death. Thus, Becker argued, when we receive reminders of our death, what he calls death salience, we respond by defending those values and cultures. This view was recently expounded as part of the terror management theory proposed by Jeff Greenberg, Sheldon Solomon, and Tom Pisinski in 2015. Although Marshall does not consider it directly, these processes would apply more so to collapse denial than to climate denial, as the death involves not only oneself, but all of what one would contribute to. These personal processes are likely made worse for sustainability experts than the general public, given the typical allegiance of professionals to incumbent social structures. Research has revealed that people who have a higher level of formal education are more supportive of the existing social and economic systems than those that have less education. The argument is that people who have invested time and money in progressing to a higher status within existing social structures are more naturally inclined to imagine reform of those systems than their upending. This situation is accentuated if we assume our livelihood, identity, and self-worth is dependent on the perspective that progress on sustainability is possible and that we are part of that progressive process. The third factor influencing denial is institutional. I have worked for over 20 years within or with organizations working on the sustainability agenda in nonprofit, private, and governmental sectors. In none of these sectors is there an obvious institutional self-interest in articulating the probability or inevitability of social collapse, not to members of your charity, not to consumers of your product, not to voters of your party. There are a few niche companies that benefit from a collapse discourse, leading some people to seek to prepare by buying their products. This field may expand in future at various scales of preparedness, which I return to below. But the internal culture of environmental groups remains strongly in favor of appearing effective, even when decades of investment and campaigning have not produced a net positive outcome on climate, ecosystems, or many specific species. Let us look at the largest environmental charity, WWF, as an example of this process of organizational drivers of implicative denial. I worked for them when we were striving towards all UK wood product imports being from sustainable forests by 1995. Then it became well-managed, quote-unquote, forests by 2000. Then targets were quietly forgotten with the potensiphonic language of solving deforestation through innovative partnerships remained. If the employees of the world's leading environmental groups were on performance-related pay, they would probably owe their members and donors money by now. The fact that some readers may find such a comment to be rude and unhelpful highlights how our interests in civility, praise, and belonging within a professional community can censor those of us who seek to communicate uncomfortable truths in memorable ways, like that journalist in the New York Magazine. These personal and institutional factors mean that environmental professionals may be some of the slowest to process the implications of the latest climate information. In 2017, a survey of more than 8,000 people across eight different countries – Australia, Brazil, China, Germany, India, South Africa, the UK, and the US – asked respondents to gauge their perceived level of security as compared to two years ago in regards to global risks. A total of 61% said they felt more insecure, while only 18% said they felt more Secure. On climate change, 48% of respondents strongly agreed that it is a global catastrophic risk, with an additional 36% of people tending to agree with that. Only 14% of respondents disagreed to some degree with the idea that climate change presented a catastrophic risk. This perspective on climate may help explain other survey data that suggests remarkable changes in how people view technology, progress, their society, and the future prospects for their children. A 2017 global survey found that only 13% of the public think the world is getting better, which is major change from the 10 years before. In the USA, polls indicate that belief in technology as a good force has been fading. This information may reflect a wider questioning of the idea that progress is always good and possible. Such a shift in perspective is indicated by opinion polls, showing that far fewer people today than the last decade believe their children will have a better future than themselves. Another indicator of whether people believe in their future is if If they believe in the basis of their society, studies have consistently found that more people are losing faith in electoral democracy and in the economic system. The questioning of mainstream life and of progress is also reflected in the shift away from secular relational values to traditional values that has been occurring worldwide since 2010. How do children feel about their futures? I have not found a large or longitudinal study on children's views of the future, but one journalist who asked children from 6 to 12 years old to paint what they expect the world in 50 years to be like generated mostly apocalyptic images. This evidence suggests that the idea we experts need to be careful about what to tell them, the unsupported public, may be a narcissistic delusion in need of immediate remedy." Emotional difficulties with realizing the tragedy that is coming, and that is in many ways upon us already, are understandable. Yet these difficulties need to be overcome so we can explore what the implications may be for our work, lives, and communities. We're approaching the next section of the paper, so we're going to take a quick break. You're tuned into The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. We'll be right back. Tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I'm your host, Joe Man. That last track was Lucy Forever. You might recognize it from the GTA 3 soundtrack. The lyrical content seemed relevant, so I decided to throw that one in there. We're going to jump back into the deep adaptation paper. The next section is called Framing After Denial. As a sense of calamity grows within the environmental movement, some argue against a focus on carbon reductionism for how it may limit our appreciation of why we face this tragedy and what to do about it. I agree that climate change is not just a pollution problem, but an indicator of how our human psyche and our culture became divorced from our natural habitat. However, that does not mean we should deprioritize the climate situation for a broader environmental agenda. If we allow ourselves to accept that a climate-induced form of economic and social collapse is now likely, then we can begin to explore the nature and likelihood of that collapse. That is when we discover a range of different views. Some frame the future as involving a collapse of this economic and social system, which does not necessarily mean a complete collapse of law, order, identity, and values. Some regard that kind of collapse as offering a potential upside in bringing humanity to a post-consumerist way of life that would be more conscious of relationships between people and nature. Some even argue that this reconnection with nature will generate hitherto unimaginable solutions to our predicament. Sometimes that view comes with a belief in the power of spiritual practices to influence the material world according to human intent. The perspective that natural or spiritual reconnection might save us from catastrophe is, however, a psychological response one could analyze as a form of denial. Some analysts emphasize the unpredictable and catastrophic nature of this collapse so that it will not be possible to plan a way to transition at either collective or small-scale levels to a new way of life that we might imagine as tolerable, let alone beautiful. Then others go further still and argue that the data can be interpreted as indicating climate change is now in a runaway pattern, with inevitable methane release from the seafloor leading to a rapid collapse of societies that will trigger multiple meltdowns of some of the world's 400 nuclear power stations leading to the extinction of the human Race. This assessment that we face near-term human extinction can draw on the conclusions by geologists that the last mass extinction of life on Earth, where 95% of species disappeared, was due to methane-induced rapid warming of the atmosphere. With each of these framings, collapse, catastrophe, extinction, people describe different degrees of certainty. Different people speak of a scenario being possible, probable, or inevitable. In my conversations with both professionals in sustainability or climate and others not directly involved, I have found that people choose a scenario and a probability depending not on what the data and its analysis might suggest, but what they are choosing to live with as a story about this topic. That parallels findings in psychology that none of us are purely logic machines, but relate information into stories about how things relate and why. None of us are immune to that process. Currently, I have chosen to interpret the information as indicating inevitable collapse, probable catastrophe, and possible extinction. There is a growing community of people who conclude we face inevitable human extinction and treat that view as a prerequisite for meaningful discussions about the implications for our lives right now. For instance, there are thousands of people on Facebook groups who believe human extinction is near. In such groups, I have witnessed how people who doubt extinction is either inevitable or coming soon are disparaged by some participants for being weak and deluded. This could reflect how some of us may find it easier to believe in a certain than an uncertain story, especially when the uncertain future would be so different today that it is difficult to comprehend. Reflection on the end of times, or eschatology, is a major dimension of the human experience, and the total sense of loss of everything one could ever contribute to is an extremely powerful experience for many people. How they emerge from that experience depends on many factors, with loving kindness, creativity, transcendence, anger, depression, nihilism, and apathy all being potential responses. Given the potential spiritual experience triggered by sensing the imminent extinction of the human race, we can appreciate why a belief in the inevitability of extinction could be a basis for some people to come together. In my work with mature students, I have found that inviting them to consider collapse as inevitable, catastrophe as probable, and extinction as possible has not led to apathy or depression. Instead, in a supportive environment where we have enjoyed community with each other, celebrating ancestors and enjoying nature before then looking at this information and possible framings for it, something positive happens. I have witnessed a shedding of concern for conforming to the status quo and a new creativity about what to focus on going forward. Despite that, a certain discombobulation occurs and remains over time as one tries to find a way forward in a society where such perspectives are uncommon. Continued sharing about the implications as we transition our work and lives is valuable. One further factor in the framing of our situation concerns timing, which also concerns geography. Where and when will the collapse or catastrophe begin? When will it affect my livelihood and society? Has it already begun? Although it is difficult to forecast and impossible to predict with certainty, that does not mean we should not try. The current data on temperature rise at the poles and impacts on weather patterns around the world suggests we are already in the midst of dramatic changes that will impact massively and negatively on agriculture within the next 20 years. Impacts have already begun. That sense of near-term disruption to our ability to feed ourselves and our families and the implications for crime and conflict adds another level to the discombobulation I mentioned. Should you drop everything now and move somewhere more suitable for self-sufficiency? Should you be spending time reading the rest of this article? Should I even finish writing it? Some of the people who believe that we face inevitable extinction believe that no one will read this article because we will see a collapse of civilization in the next 12 months when the harvests fail across the Northern Hemisphere. They see social collapse leading to immediate meltdowns of nuclear power stations and thus human extinction being a near-term phenomenon. Certainly not more than five years from now. The clarity and the drama of their message is why inevitable near-term human extinction, or INTHE, has become a widely used phrase online for discussions about climate collapse. Writing about that perspective makes me sad. Even four years after I first let myself consider near-term extinction properly, not as something to dismiss, it still makes my jaw drop, eyes moisten, and air escape my lungs. I have seen how the idea of INTHE can lead me to focus on truth, love and joy in the now, which is wonderful, but how it can also make me lose interest in planning for the future. And yet I always come around to the same conclusion, we do not know. Ignoring the future because it is unlikely to matter might backfire. Running for the hills to create our own eco-community might backfire, but we definitely know that continuing to work in the ways we have done until now is not just backfiring, it is holding the gun to our own heads. With this in mind, we can choose to explore how to evolve what we do without any simple answers. In my post-denial state, shared by increasing numbers of my students and colleagues, I realized that we would benefit from conceptual maps for how to address these questions. I therefore set about synthesizing the main things people talked about doing differently in light of a view of inevitable collapse and probable catastrophe. This is what I offer now as the Deep Adaptation Agenda. The Deep Adaptation Agenda for many years, discussions and initiatives on adaptation to climate change were seen by environmental activists and policymakers as unhelpful to the necessary focus on carbon emissions reductions. That view finally changed in 2010 when the IPCC gave more attention to how societies and economies could be helped to adapt to climate change, and the United Nations Global Adaptation Network was founded to promote knowledge sharing and collaboration. Five years later, the Paris Accord between member states produced a Global Goal on Adaptation, or G. With the aim of enhancing adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience, and reducing vulnerability to climate change, with a view to contributing to sustainable development and ensuring an adequate adaptation response in the context of the global temperature goal, cited in Singh, Harmeling, and Rye 2016. Countries committed to develop National Adaptation Plans, or NAPs, and report on their creation to the UN. Since then, the funding being made available to climate adaptation has grown, with all the international development institutions active on adaptation finance. In 2018, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, or IFAD, African Development Bank, or AFDB, Asian Development Bank, or ADB, Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery, or GFDRR, and the World Bank each agreed major financing for governments to increase resilience for their communities. Some of their projects include the Green Climate Fund, which was created to provide lower-income countries with assistance. Typical projects include improving the ability of small-scale farmers to cope with weather variability through the introduction of irrigation and the ability of urban planners to respond to rising sea levels and extreme rainfall events through re-engineering drainage systems. These initiatives are falling short of the commitments made by governments over the past eight years, and so more is being done to promote private bonds to finance adaptation, as well as stimulate private philanthropy on this agenda. These efforts are paralleled by an increased range of activities under the umbrella of disaster risk reduction, which has its own international agency, the United Nations International Strategy for Disaster Reduction, or UNISDR. The aim of their work is to reduce the damage caused by natural hazards like earthquakes, floods, droughts, and cyclones through reducing sensitivity to these hazards, as well as increasing the capacity to respond when disasters hit. That focus means significant engagement with urban planners and local governments. In the business sector, this disaster risk reduction agenda meets the private sector through the well established fields of risk management and business continuity management. Companies ask themselves what the points of failure might be in their value chain and seek to reduce those vulnerabilities or the significance of something failing. Given the climate science we discussed earlier, some people may think this action is too little too late. Yet, if such action reduces some harm temporarily, that will help people, just like you and me, and therefore such action should not be disregarded. Nevertheless, we can look more critically at how people and organizations are framing the situation and the limitations that such a framing may impose. The initiatives are typically described as promoting resilience rather than sustainability. Some definitions of resilience within the environmental sector are surprisingly upbeat. For instance, the Stockholm Resilience Center in 2015 explains that resilience is the capacity of a system, be it an individual, a forest, a city, or an economy, to deal with change and continue to develop. It is about how humans and nature can use shocks and disturbances like a financial crisis or climate change to spur renewal and innovative thinking. In offering that definition, they are drawing on concepts in biology where ecosystems are observed to overcome disturbances and increase their complexity. Two issues require attention at this point. First, the upbeat allegiance to, quote, development, unquote, and, quote, progress, unquote, in certain discourses about resilience may not be helpful as we enter a period when material, quote, progress, unquote, may not be possible, and so aiming for it might become counterproductive. Second, apart from some limited soft skills development, the initiatives under the resilience banner are nearly all focused on physical adaptation to climate change, rather than considering a wider perspective on psychological resilience. In psychology, resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, such as family and relationship problems, serious health problems, or workplace and financial stressors. It means bouncing back from difficult experiences. How a person bounces back, quote-unquote, after difficulties or loss may be through a creative reinterpretation of identity and priorities. The concept of resilience in psychology does not, therefore, assume that people return to how they were before. Given the climate reality we now face, this less progressivist framing of resilience is more useful for a deeper adaptation agenda. In pursuit of a conceptual map of deep adaptation, we can conceive of resilience of human societies as the capacity to adapt to changing circumstances so as to survive with valued norms and behaviors. Given that analysts are concluding that a social collapse is inevitable, the question becomes, what are the valued norms and behaviors that human societies will wish to maintain as they seek to survive? That highlights how deep adaptation will involve more than, quote, resilience, unquote. It brings us to a second area of this agenda, which I have named relinquishment. It involves people and communities letting go of certain assets, behaviors, and beliefs, where retaining them could make matters worse. Examples include withdrawing from coastlines, shutting down vulnerable industrial facilities, or giving up expectations for certain types of consumption. The third area can be called restoration. It involves people and communities rediscovering attitudes and approaches to life, and organization that are hydrocarbon-fueled to civilization eroded. Examples include rewilding landscapes so they provide more ecological benefits and require less management, changing diets back to match the seasons, rediscovering non-electronically-powered forms of play, and increased community-level productivity and support. It is not my intention in this paper to map out more specific implications of a deep adaptation agenda. Indeed, it is impossible to do so, and to attempt it would assume we are in a situation for calculated attempts at management when what we face is a complex predicament beyond our control. Rather, I hope the deep adaptation agenda of resilience, relinquishment, and restoration can be a useful framework for community dialogue in the face of climate change. Resilience asks us, how do we keep what we really want to keep? Relinquishment asks us, what do we need to let go of in order to not make matters worse. Restoration asks us, what can we bring back to help us with coming difficulties and tragedies? In 2017, this deep adaptation agenda was used to frame a festival of alternatives organized by Peterborough Environment City Trust. It included a whole day devoted to exploring what relinquishment could involve. As such, it allowed more open conversation and imagination than a narrower focus on resilience. Further events are planned across the UK. Whether it will be useful framing for a broader level policy agenda is yet to be seen. How does this deep adaptation agenda relate to the broad conceptual framework of sustainable development? Is it related to other perspectives that despite the attention of international institutions to sustainable development goals, the era of sustainable development as unifying concept and goal is now ending? It is an explicitly post-sustainability framing and part of the restoration approach to engaging with social and environmental dilemmas as I outlined elsewhere. We're coming up on the second to last section, so we're going to take a quick break. You're tuned into The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. tuned into the joe man show on kuhs denver i'm your host joe man that last track was nine inch nails heresy we're going to dive back into the last bit of the deep adaptation paper this section is research futures in the face of climate tragedy I was only partly joking earlier when I questioned why I was even writing this paper. If all the data and analysis turn out to be misleading, and this society continues nicely for the coming decades, then this article will not have helped my career. If the predicted collapse comes within the next decade, then I won't have a career. It is the perfect lose-lose. I mention this to highlight how it will not be easy to identify ways forward as academic researchers and educators in the field of organizational sustainability. For the academics reading this paper, most of you will have increasing teaching loads, in. Areas where you were expected to cover certain content. I know you may have little time and space for reinventing your expertise and focus. Those of you who have a mandate to research might discover that the deep adaptation agenda is not an easy topic for finding research partners and funders. This restrictive situation was not always the reality faced by academics. It is the result of changes in higher education that are one expression of an ideology that has made the human race so poor at addressing a threat to its well-being and even existence it is an ideology that many of us have been complicit in promoting if we have been working in business schools it is important to recognize that complicity before considering how to evolve our research in the face of climate tragedy the west's response to environmental issues has been restricted by the dominance of neoliberal economics since the 1970s that led to hyper individualist market fundamentalist incremental and atomistic approaches By hyper-individualist, I mean a focus on individual action as consumers, switching light bulbs or buying sustainable furniture, rather than promoting political action as engaged citizens. By market-fundamentalist, I mean a focus on market mechanisms like the complex, costly, and largely useless carbon cap and trade systems, rather than exploring what more government intervention could achieve. By incremental, I mean a focus on celebrating small steps forward such as a company publishing a sustainability report rather than strategies designed for a speed and scale of change suggested by the science. By atomistic, I mean a focus on seeing climate action as a separate issue from the governance of markets, finance, and banking rather than exploring what kind of economic system could permit or enable sustainability. This ideology has now influenced the workloads and priorities of academics in most universities, which restricts how we can respond to the climate tragedy. In my own case, I took an unpaid sabbatical, and writing this paper is one of the outcomes of that decision. We no longer have time for the career games of aiming to publish in top-ranked journals to impress our line managers or improve our CV for if we enter the job market. Nor do we have a need for the narrow specialisms that are required to publish in such journals. So yes, I am suggesting that in order to let oneself evolve in response to the climate tragedy, one may have to quit a job, and even a career. However, if one is prepared to do that, then one can engage with an employer and professional community from a new place of confidence. If staying in academia, I recommend you begin to ask some questions of all that you research and teach. When reading others' research, I recommend asking, how might these findings inform efforts for a more massive and urgent pursuit of resilience, relinquishment, and restoration in the face of social collapse? You may find that most of what you read offers little on that question, and therefore, you no longer wish to engage with it. On one's own research, I recommend asking, if I didn't believe in incremental incorporation of climate concerns into current organizations and systems, what might I want to know more about? In answering that question, I recommend talking to non-specialists as much as people in your own field so that you are able to talk more freely and consider all options. In my own work, I stopped researching corporate sustainability. I learned about leadership and communications and began to research, teach, and advise on these matters in the political arena. I began to work on systems to enable relocalization of economies and support for community development, particularly those systems using local currency. I sought to share that knowledge more widely and therefore launched a free online course called the Money and Society Mass Open Online Course. I began to spend more time reading and talking about the climate tragedy and what I might do or stop doing with that in mind. This rethinking and repositioning is ongoing, but I can no longer work on subjects that do not have some relevance to deep adaptation. Looking ahead, I see the need and opportunity for more work at multiple levels. People will need more support to access information and networks for how to attempt to shift in their livelihoods and lifestyles. Existing approaches to living off-grid in intentional communities are useful to learn from, but this agenda needs to go further in asking questions like how small-scale production of drugs like aspirin is possible. Free online and in-person courses, as well as support networks on self-sufficiency, need to be scaled. Local governments will need similar support on how to develop the capabilities today that will help their local communities to collaborate, not fracture, during a collapse. For instance, they will need to roll out systems for productive cooperation between neighbors, such as product and service exchange platforms enabled by locally issued currency. At the international level, there is the need to work on how to responsibly address the wider fallout from collapsing societies. These will be many but obviously include the challenges of refugee support and the securing of dangerous industrial nuclear sites at the moment of a societal collapse. Other intellectual disciplines and traditions may be of interest going forward. Human extinction and the topic of eschatology, or the end of the world, is something that has been discussed in various academic disciplines, as you might expect. In theology, it has been widely discussed, while it also appears in literary theory as an interesting element to creative writing and in psychology during the 1980s as a phenomenon related to the threat of nuclear war. The field of psychology seems to be particularly relevant going forward. Whatever we choose to work on in the future will not be a simple calculation, it will be shaped by the emotional or psychological implications of this new awareness of a societal collapse being likely in our own lifetimes. I have explored some of these emotional issues and how they have been affecting my work choices in a reflective essay on the spiritual implications of climate despair. I recommend giving yourself time for such reflection and evolution rather than rushing into a new agenda of research or teaching. If you are a student, then I recommend sending your lecturers this paper and inviting a class discussion about these ideas. It is likely that those who are not embedded within the existing system will be the ones more able to lead this agenda. I think it may be our vanity as academics to think that anyone but academics and students read academic papers. Therefore, I have chosen to leave my recommendations for managers, policymakers, and laypersons for another outlet. Conclusions. Since records began in 1850, 17 of the 18 hottest years have occurred since 2000. Important steps on climate mitigation and adaptation have been taken over the past decade. However, these steps could not be regarded as equivalent to walking up a landslide. If the landslide had not already begun, then quicker and bigger steps would get us to the top of where we want to be. Sadly, the latest climate data, emissions data, and data on the spread of carbon-intensive lifestyles show that the landslide has already begun. As the point of no return can't be fully known until after the event, ambitious work on reducing carbon emissions and extracting more from the air, naturally and synthetically, is more critical than ever. That must involve a new front of action on methane. Disruptive impacts from climate change are now inevitable. Geoengineering is likely to be ineffective or counterproductive. Therefore, the mainstream climate policy community now recognizes the need to work much more on adaptation to the effects of climate change. That must now rapidly permeate the broader field of people engaged in sustainable development as practitioners, researchers, and educators. In assessing how our approaches could evolve, we need to appreciate what kind of adaptation is possible. Recent research suggests that human societies will experience disruptions to their basic functioning within less than 10 years due to climate stress. Such disruptions include increased levels of malnutrition, starvation, disease, civil conflict, and war, and will not avoid affluent nations. This situation makes redundant the reformist approach to sustainable development and related fields of corporate sustainability that has underpinned the approach of many professionals. Instead, a new approach which explores how to reduce harm and not make matters worse is important to develop. In support of that challenging and ultimately personal process, understanding a deep adaptation agenda may be useful. That concludes Jem Bendel's paper, Deep Adaptation. If you want to read it yourself and you want to check the sources, you can search Deep Adaptation on Google. It's the first search result in PDF format. And that concludes our show for tonight. Thank you so much everybody for tuning in. Thank you if you stuck it out. This is really important stuff and it's time for us to make some radical changes. You've been tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. Have a great night.